You've heard of BetaShares. You've probably seen the logo on our podcast. You might even be among their 1 million investors. So you can imagine that I'm delighted to say BetaShares is the official ETF partner of the Australian Finance Podcast. With nearly 100 exchange-traded funds, you can go to betashares.com.au and immerse yourself in ETFs and unique insights covering all of the sectors, themes, core and satellite positions you could want. Think cybersecurity through the Hack ETF, robotics and AI with the RBTZ ETF, and uranium with the URNM ETF. The list goes on. To explore the BetaShares ETF range, visit betashares.com.au, read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website, and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Hi, I'm Owen from RAS Australia. Thanks for tuning in to the RAS Network. Before we get into today's show, there are a few things we have to go over. Firstly, what you're about to hear and see is limited to general information only. It's not personal financial advice like you'd get from a financial planner. Also, it's important to remember that past performance is not indicative of future performance. That means that anything that's happened in the past, or we say today, is not necessarily going to reflect what happens in the future. Lastly, Please consider that any of the guests or myself featuring on this program may have a financial interest in some of the products or shares mentioned. That's enough from me. I hope you enjoyed today's program. Chris Bates from Wealthful, welcome back to the show, mate. Awesome to be here. Loving it. <laughs> it's always a pleasure to chat to you. And I know Kate's, uh, we're just chatting off here. Kate's um, just dreaming up some suburbs of where she might want to buy. No, Kate, I'm not ready yet, Owen. You haven't inspired me enough with your yeah. crazy renovation that's taken <laughs> over 12 months. <laughs> 12 months for a renovation, I think maybe Chris could attest to this, is a reasonable length of time. I'd say we've moved pretty quickly. Chris, how long have you been doing yours for? Uh, we start in November. The wife jokes every day. They've been here for 12 months. I can't imagine life without waking up without tradies in our house. Um, my 18-month-year-old daughter, is just like someone can walk into the house, walk straight past her while she's having her wheat picks and she doesn't even, you know, bat an eyelid because she's just <laughs> expecting someone to be there. Um, it's definitely a testing thing. Uh, yeah. On relationships and families as well. So uh, yeah. yeah. Don't jump sure. into a renovation without thinking it through is my advice. <laughs> totally. And um, also, yeah, it's expensive too, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's way more expensive than you expect. And um, it's just the little things and the extra time it takes, you know, to get a quality result. Um, and that's the thing. Once you get stuck into one, you're like, you want the quality, you set the bar at a certain level and then you've got to continue everything. So, we, you know, uh, at to that level uh, and naturally you want something that looks amazing and is amazing, et cetera. Um, and that comes with money. So, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it comes to it as well. Um, for me, you know, with our house being a bit of a shack in the hills, um, we kind of set the bar pretty low because we, we're kind of being realistic about it in terms of we don't know what we want in like three to five years. We just want something livable for the next three to five. And so we haven't overextended or overcapitalized. Do you think, did you guys make a decision like, just on that, if you, when you did the reno, you know, we're going to do it at this level and this is what we want because this is a house we tend to own for a long time. Um, a bit of both. So a bit of um, playing to the market as well. So we were like, what can we do to this property to solve issues with it that the market wouldn't like, um, i.e. our landscaping and our backyard. It was a big deterrent for a lot of families, but now we've created it into a, where families are going to love it because there's lots of flat grass and there's decks and these sort of things um and also the market we're in we're pitching to a certain type of target market and um you know and we can elevate it from a certain point to hit a different target market by creating 
um, a different product, I guess. And so one thing's maybe overcapitalizing, but you also potentially can lift your property into a new bracket um, by changing features on it. Maybe it's bedrooms or whether it's the appeal of it from the street or et cetera. So um, the other thing with overcapitalizing as well is that you can, um, the market can save you. So, you know, if a market shifts from a different type of buyer pool, which is happening at the moment a lot where as prices of properties rise, different people can afford them um, and different people move to suburbs um, because of different suburbs at different prices, et cetera. And so fortunately our area has shifted to a much higher price point as well. So we already renovating for that higher price point, if that makes sense. And so if that ditch, that market change didn't happen, then we probably have overcapitalized because we would have, been an expensive property for that target market and there's other options as well so it's a really thing you've got to be careful with um i think we got saved by the market moved uh not by good planning (laughs) yeah right yeah um we've had a few guests on the show recently talking about property and talking about kind of the, the shares versus property debate which is never ending um how about for you? We, we were keen because you, you reached out to us after the, the, one of the episodes went live. And we had Andrew Page, the founder of Strawman, on the show, and he talked about his regret selling the house and not using it as a way to um, leverage his share portfolio. Instead, he decided to sell the property to buy shares. And then that led to this whole other issue with you know, the emotional regret, I guess, um, of shifting his family around to the young family and the issues associated with that. Um, so I guess just at a high level, before we get stuck into the kind of the strategies and whatever, can you just unpack kind of where you sit just generally on that debate? I know that's a pretty big thing to ask, but yeah, it's going to throw it over to you. So I don't think it's shares or property. I think it's just a, a sequence and a stage of life thing. You know, like if you're 20, you should potentially be looking at shares to maybe save for a house deposit. If it's over five, 10 years, you know, maybe then when you get to um, higher incomes as your careers progress and you've got bigger deposit, then maybe you should start shifting into property. Um, then maybe you should be sort of shifting some into maybe an investment property or into shares and then you're super. And then as you get later in life, property becomes a lumpy asset um, and you then want to be using other assets like your shares and your self, your super and all that sort of stuff. So I don't think it's either or it's just using both of them strategically, depending on what stage of life you've got and what income you've got and what capital you've got, et cetera. Um, I think um, Andrew's story is a really interesting one. I mean, we haven't heard that one too often, to be honest, you know, been talking around property basically since 2012, all day, every day um, with young couples. And before that was, you know, a lot of the older generation. And we've seen lots of people who have sold out of the market. And even yesterday, a client was considering doing it. Um, and maybe they're selling out because they're trying to top the market. So they're thinking, oh, today's a great time to sell. I'm going to buy in cheaper next year. So like you do with shares, trying to time the market. Um, we've seen people sell um, the, with the idea of buying again, uh, but they can very quickly get priced out of the market. And, um, you know, sort of <laughs> Kate's point, initially they haven't willing to change their expectations. They're not willing to move with the market. And then they get completely priced out and the market keeps moving and they end up just leaving money in the bank for years and years. Um, we've seen people move into state or regionally. Um, they've sold, they've bought regionally and then they go, oh, you know what? I'm going to get back to the city. Mm. It's too hard to commute, et cetera. So we've seen people try to play around with their home. Um, and it's a dangerous thing to do because if it stuffs up, then you've basically you've gone from fully, you know, really great security, stability, um, to none at all. And it becomes very stressful, you know, the impact on relationships and life and work and et cetera. So I thought it was a really interesting one. Um, I mean, Andrew's gone through the journey. It's not about me saying, you know, he shouldn't have done that, but he's figured out that, you know, the, the challenges with renting are serious. And, um, and when you're a single, you're a couple, I mean, I lived over 20, 30 houses in my twenties. I traveled around heaps. I lived in London, Melbourne, all over Sydney, different parts of Melbourne, et cetera. You can easily move, right? When you're single, you're a couple um, and your housing needs are very limited because um, you can live quite minimally, right? And you don't really want to buy much furniture because you know you're going to move anyway. So you, it doesn't cost you that much. But as soon as you start to get to that family formation stage or thinking that you might have a family, um, the nesting takes over. Um, I mean, even yesterday, a client I've been trying to 
take action with for a year. Uh, you know, what's driving him is what his, well, his fiance is pregnant, basically. Um, <laughs> and it's just that, well, what are we going to do now? I need to provide, I need to get a house. Um, we need to have that. We want to have that stability, you know, when they go to school, um, et cetera. And so you know, Andrew really sort of discussed the problems with that. And also the, the aspirational part of life as well is a huge part, you know, like obviously people want a house, but then they want that in a certain area so they can have the community and the lifestyle benefits of that. So um, it was a really interesting sort of conversation you guys had. And Chris, do you find that um, like with your clients, once people are in the property market, they tend to stay and they won't sell one house until they've made an offer on the next one? It's a really interesting one. I think a lot of people um, naturally are more conservative than um, aggressive with the way that they make decisions. Um, and most people naturally want to sell first um, and then they want to go and buy something else. Once we have a conversation with them, we talk them through the logistics of that um, and the challenges of making that happen, um, they, they come around to potentially buying first. And that really depends on the quality of the asset they've got today. Uh, but you're right, like not many people are doing what Andrew does and sort of selling, buying shares uh, and trying to time the market. Um, and all of them come to us after doing that and going, oh, well, I've been trying to get in for two or three years and it keeps running on me. You know, how do we solve this problem? Mm. It's a bit like leaving one job without anything lined up. It's a bit scary then. And you're sort of under a lot more pressure to line the next thing up. Um, and I know you shared with us after listening to Andrew's episode, a range of strategies for property investors that they can use to sort of level up maybe their investment property journey. And we talk a lot about uh, strategies for share investors, but I thought it'd be really great if you could share some of the insights that you've gained over your career as a mortgage broker and sort of expert in the property market about how um, people can sort of take that next step with their property investing journey. Um, and I, I know you sort of started with the point about it being a, a like your primary residence being a tax-free home. Are you able to talk on that point a bit? Yeah. So this is, um, you know, it's easily sort of forgotten really, you know, like, and because it's your home, you're living in it and you're living there for a long time. Like it might be 10 years. Um, and then when you decide to sell that property, um, there's not the tax office doesn't come knocking and say, hang on a sec, you bought that house for 500 and you're selling it for a million, you know, you owe us a hundred or 150 grand of capital gains tax, right? So whenever you sell your home that you lived in, um, you don't pay any tax. And that's a huge benefit as an investment over anything else, really. It's the biggest sort of tax write-off. Like if you went 500 grand of income, you know, you probably pay 30 to 50% tax on that, right? Um, so you've got to earn, you know, six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars of of income um, to get that five hundred. So that's the thing that's really forgotten about, and something that you definitely you can only do it on one property. So it's definitely one opportunity, and it's it also means when some clients are thinking to us and saying, like, I've got a house, I want to live modestly, right? I want to uh, have a house and a caravan, which I think Andrew spoke about, right, in Burke, right? What they are also doing is they're missing out on the opportunity to have one that asset growing tax-free. So the house, the caravan in Burke's growing tax-free, but he hasn't got a house in a good suburb growing tax-free. And so that one opportunity is wasted really. And it's also something when clients come to us and they go, oh, I'm really happy in my house, um, but I don't really need to upgrade. Well, potentially that's the best thing to do rather than buying an investment property or rather than buying shares because the house they're in maybe now might not be a great asset. It might be on a poor street. It might be dark. It might be a two-bed house that couldn't convert to three. Um, but if they went and spent another couple hundred thousand, they shift into a whole other market and they get a better asset growing from tax-free. So you really need to use it wisely because it is the one opportunity to have a good asset growing for you tax-free. Um, so that's the, the most important thing. Whereas you buy investment property, um, you'd pay capital gains tax when you sell it, you know, on 50% of that gain, as long as you hold it for more than 12 months. But the thing with property rather than shares um, you got to be pretty gutsy with shares to hold on to your winners. You know, it's all about behavioral economics. And um, unfortunately, you know, most people want to sell their winners and they want to hold on to their losers in, in investment portfolios, right? But it makes sense to, when you buy a share, if it goes up in value, don't sell it. But most people want to take their profits, right? So when you take your profits on shares, you pay capital gains tax. And, you know, a lot of people, sometimes those profits are under 12 months as well. Um, and so you pay a lot of capital gains tax on shares. But with property... Even if you buy an investment property and it goes up in value, you never pay capital gains tax till you sell it. 
And the best way to buy investment property is to hold them for a long time, right? Not just five or 10 years. You're talking 20, 30 or 40 years. If it's a quality asset, it should always stay a quality asset. So there'll never be a time when you say, you know what? Oh, I really want to just get out now because it's going to fall in value. Well, no, you go, well, why would I sell it now? In five years times, it's going to be even better. It's still scarce, still even more desirable. And what you can do with bank lending is use that equity to reborrow, to buy shares, um, to you know renovate, um, et cetera. And you don't pay any capital gains tax if you just redraw on an investment property gains. Um, and so you can get the gains on an investment property, redraw them through a loan and then buy other investments and you still haven't paid capital gains tax on that investment property. So it's one thing you definitely want to sort of manage with, with um, yeah, property. Because mm, these are a range of strategies that you don't really have available to you if you are investing in shares. And so if you have only thought about share investing, you might not have realized you have this capital gains free primary residence available to you. Yeah. And and what about if you rent? I know you mentioned something about renting uh, your primary residence. What are the what happens with that? Does that change that CGT? Yeah, so there's a really interesting thing the ATO allows you to do, and that's something called the six-year rule. Just type it into Google and do lots of reading on it, and you can go to the ATO web, website. Um, the key thing is if you do buy um, a property and you move into it straight away when you first purchase it, like you don't put it on the rental market, that becomes and you haven't got any other homes, then that becomes your principal place of residence. Now, you can move out of that property for up to six years and still have that property class as your principal place of residence for tax purposes and it can grow tax-free for up to six years and so it's a really interesting thing what we do with clients sometimes where they go look i i want to buy my future home but i don't want to make that lifestyle shift to that location today but and i say well would you do it for six months right um the ato don't say how long you have to do it but would you go and live for example uh if you're in melbourne say mornington peninsula or geelong or bendigo ballarat or something like that for six months get that property growing tax-free, then move back to the city and, and live in sort of South Yarra um, with your friends uh, and have that property growing for you tax-free, um, which can be a huge difference over six years, you know, um, if, it, if it grows substantially. So that's another thing that um, a lot of first-time property investors should be looking at. Chris, if you mentioned before the quality, uh, like the quality of um, an asset being probably the most important thing. Um, can you, maybe just for people that, don't understand now. I know you and I have talked about this before. Yeah. Talked about this in the, the property course. Um, can you just maybe just kind of in, in as concisely as you can, just what kind of defines a quality asset in your mind? Is there it's it concisely is going to be difficult here to be honest, <laughs> Owen, but thanks to the um the attempt here. I mean, the reality is, and uh while I'm pro property, I'm actually anti most property. Um, I look at it, clients will send them to me and I'll just say, look, I don't like it for these reasons. Um, you know, the, the suburb, um, I do believe every suburb, you know, besides sort of fringe house and land packages, which I, I just find it hard to ever get excited about just because of the future supply and the quality of the property housing that's getting built um, in these areas and also areas where they're building lots of high rise apartments, you know, the same problems in house and land packages you have in these areas where they're building lots of high rises. The reason is, is that the type of property they're building is not that great and the quality and they're building lots more of it from a supply. So quality assets in shares or any any sort of investment market, something where there's limited supply, like a share of a company does have that, right? Um, and there's growing demand to own it. So when in thinking about a property, you got to think, is this property really scarce? Um, are they building more of it? And so a lot of properties ruled out because of that. Like even new townhouses, fail that test because you go, well, are they building more townhouses? Well, yeah, this is what I'm trying to buy. There's actually more up the street. So the first thing you do is you've got to get scarcity. And then in that, so while you go, yeah, okay, it's a house in Melbourne. They're not building any more of that in the inner ring, but is there, is that property really scarce? Well, no, not really because um, it's on a main road um, and you know, that's not what people really want. So is it on a really good street? And so then that cuts out a lot of properties. Um, and then even in different sides of streets, you can think, well, where would people really want to live? Well, it's actually on this side because this gets better sun than this side. Um, and then you look at a house, you go, well, that house is great, but next door there's a mechanic. And so privacy and noise. And so I guess the way to think about a quality asset is looking at the lifestyle it provides um, 
And is that scarce? And who do, who would really want that lifestyle, right? So if it's a scarce property, but it's not in a great location, um, that's okay. But who really would, wants to buy it? And so you've got to think of your property and go, well, who are the, the demand pools that really want it? You know, is it a young couple? Is it a high earning young couple? Is it a double income young couple? Um, is it a couple that are maybe 30, 40 that want to upgrade into that area because of schooling? Um, and so the quality of an asset is it's due to its supply. How, how, how many of them is there? Is it scarce? And is it like got a great, offering a great lifestyle? And who really wants the property? Um, and so it's a really complicated thing to sort of talk through. But once you start thinking about this demand and supply, you start overlaying in that the area that you want to buy, you can really start to see, well, actually, this is the part of the suburb people want to be. These are the streets. And you'll find that those properties are really hard to buy because the people in those streets, in that suburb, know it's the best street and they live there for 20, 30 years. So the turnover of those properties is much smaller. And even people within that suburb want to upgrade into those streets. People moving to that suburb would love to live on those streets. And those streets and those properties will outperform that suburb because A, there's less turnover of them. And B, most of the money will flow there because people want to upgrade into those streets and will pay a premium for it. Yeah, Chris has got the, for those listeners who don't know, Chris has got the Elephant in the Room podcast which you co-host, which is fantastic. So we'll put links in the show notes that way you can learn more. We've also got the, the Property 101 course with, with Chris um, available on Rask Education if you want to learn more about that. Um, Chris, one of the things that you sent through via email before this chat was um, this idea of comparing the rental cost versus the interest cost and not the total repayment. Can you explain what you meant by that? Is that only for interest-only loans or? Yeah, it's, it's, that to us? I think the other thing people misunderstand is that I don't really like these property mi- uh, myths that people, society put in you, like property never fails, but it goes up, doubles in every seven years, you know, you can never lose your property. Like this is what a lot of the our parents and our parents' parents, you know, perpetuate in society, you know, the media does, et cetera. Um, one of the things is rent money is dead, uh, dead money. I completely don't agree with that. Reality is rent gives you um, a social benefit. You know, you get to live in that property um, and somewhere to sleep at night and shelter and a lifestyle benefit of that space. And so rent is actually giving you something. It's not dead money, right? And the same thing is to think about mortgage interest. That's dead money too. That goes to a bank. Um, yes, it allows you to hold the property, but it's also dead money. And so whenever someone's thinking about buying a property, um, we've also got to really reframe them as to the, what they need to be thinking about with the property is the interest is dead money, right? It's money that's gone to the bank. Um, and when you're thinking about what your repayment is, um, you really need to split it down to, let's say your repayments are three or $4,000 a month. Like what portion of that is interest, right? Um, and that might be, you know, half or it might be 60%, right? Um, and, and then what rent am I saving by not renting? And is how is that comparing to the interest? And then the, the actual other part of the payment that you're paying to the bank each month is actually saving. So the principal part of your you know repayment is actually your mortgage going down and you'll get that money back one day when you sell, as long as you bought an asset that went up in value, um, then you get that savings back. So I think when people are looking at the move from renting versus owning, they should be comparing their rent to the interest cost. And then the capital portion is what they're trying to save every month. Um, and I think that allows people to sort of navigate that repayment a bit and go, oh, you know what? Okay, yeah, I'm moving from 3000 a month to 5000 a month, but I'm only really substituting my rent for my interest, which is the same. And then the $2,000 extra is paying off my mortgage. Mm, that's which a really- Sorry, Kate, you go. I was just saying that's a good way to frame it because you hear the rent money is dead money getting thrown around all the time, but no one ever talks about interest being dead money or thinking about what they're paying there, do they? Absolutely. And if you buy a property that's not going up, it's exactly the same thing, right? Because you buy a million dollar property and it's still a million dollars in 10 years time and you paid all this interest. Well, that's the same as if you just rented and you would have had maintenance costs and you would have had repairs. Um, and you know other things that make it more expensive than renting. And so, if it's not going, if it, that's why it's so important to buy a quality asset. Because if you're not buying an asset that's going up, then rent money, interest money, um, it's exactly the same. Um, and uh, yeah. Did you have something, Owen? <laughs> oh no, no, I was just going to say it. Just it just makes sense. Not many people think about it like that. They just see what's coming out of their pocket, right? And they don't really think about which parts of it go where. Um, I. One of the things that um, you sent through as well, Chris, was just this idea of 
uh, building a, a property portfolio first and then using that to buy shares, using that debt to buy shares. A lot of our listeners would know basically what equity is, but maybe you can explain this phrase because we're kind of switching equity to debt to buy shares, which are also called equities. So that's kind yeah. of like all over the place. Yeah. So, I mean, the, one of the benefits is the Australian, the property market is, um, you know, a big asset, right? You're talking $9 trillion and the debt on that is around $2 trillion. And so what Andrew spoke about in his thing was, it was an insight to say, look, it is too big to fail. The reality is our economy is built on it. The, the financial wealth of all households, their biggest asset is property. And so if you start playing with that, you start changing the, the mentality of uh, Australian consumer, right? And Australian consumer drives our economy, you know, et cetera. So what, what banks will do is will treat property differently as an asset class in terms of what they're willing to lend on, right? And so if you go into walking to buy property, uh, a share portfolio, no bank's going to want to lend you 90% on a million dollar portfolio of shares um, and only putting in a hundred thousand, right? They're not going to say, I'll give you 900,000 to buy a million dollars of shares. But with property, they do it every day. Um, I mean, we don't really like to encourage clients borrow more than 90%. We don't even do loans over that. We just think it's important for clients to get to that 10% deposit um, because of the LMI sort of savings. Um, but let's say a client does buy, uh, just use round numbers, a million dollar property with a $900,000 loan. You know, that's in 2021. You know, as over time, they pay down that $900,000 loan um, and the property value goes up. It might go up because they might do you know, renovations to it, but it just might go up because the area is shifting in terms of price. And at some point though, the, the value of the loan decreases and the property value goes up and you start to build equity in the property. Now, equity is always something that's often misunderstood because people say, well, if the property is now worth 1.2 million and my loan's now 800,000, you go, oh, actually, I've got $400,000 of equity. I could borrow you know, that to buy shares, et cetera. Well, no, because the bank needs to protect themselves. So what they'll do is they'll lend generally up to 80% on the value of the property. And so in this situation, that person's got a $1.2 million property. 80% on that is $960,000, right? And they've got their loans now $800,000 because they paid down that $900,000 loan down to eight hundred. dollars So this person's in a a $400,000 equity position, but from a bank's eyes, that's only 160,000 because of they reducing the property value to 80%. Um, so what that person could do, depending on their income at that point in time, they could withdraw $160,000 to go and buy other investments. They could use it for a deposit on an investment property uh, and then go and borrow 80, 90% on the investment property, or they could use that 160,000 to buy shares. They could use it to do further renovations. Um, and hopefully they never go and use it for lifestyle spending, which like buying caravans or going on holidays, which um, definitely does happen. You know, houses do get used as credit cards, unfortunately. It's not something we encourage at all. But in that situation, someone could then use that 160000 to go and buy shares, right? And that would make a lot of sense from a tax point of view, because what you would have is $160,000 going into shares, but also $160,000 of deductible interest. Um, the interest on that, that $160,000, let's say it's $5,000 a year would be used in your tax return would be a deduction offsetting the dividend income that those shares would provide. So it's negative gearing shares. Um, and you know what, why that makes sense is because this person's got a home debt that's still outstanding, you know, that $800,000, what they want to be doing is putting all their money into paying that off because that's non-deductible. And then as they get equity, they want to be using that to sort of buy other things. Um, and so that sort of gives an example. Why you wouldn't go and buy shares with cash is because it'd actually be better to pay off the home and then redraw on your mortgage to buy the shares and have lower non-deductible debt, which is your home, and then more deductible debt, which is your shares. Mm. And do you think it's even more important that people know what they're doing when they're investing if they're using this debt to do so? Um, absolutely, because... Um, you know, people naturally um, have a short-term mindset, right? Um, you know, I did, and a lot of people are thinking very positive around shares right now. Um, and I was a financial advisor for 13 years and, um, you know, I'm a massive believer in the long-term benefits of shares, right? But I do know that behavioral economics, uh, you know, which you've had, you know, Daniel Crosby on a, a few weeks ago, right? Um, that all those sort of uh, things kick in, right? And so I think when people start buying shares, um, 
the, the emotions take over, unfortunately, and, you know, they get overconfident or they react sort of um, irrationally when times are things. So I think you've got to be really careful. Um, and I'm not a big fan uh, when I was a financial advisor, not anymore. We, we focus solely around the property decision. Um, but, you know, is drip feeding into the market, dollar cost averaging, um, and just slowly building that portfolio. And I don't really believe in terms of really selling it. You know, if I'm going to go and buy $100,000 of shares, in my mind, it's money that's going to sit there for a long time. And so when people are pulling equity out, we've really got to then go invest it wisely longer term um, and don't sort of fall to all this sort of emotional stuff that will kick off pretty quickly um, because you'll start seeing that portfolio value every day. Mm. There's a lot of benefits, I think, to people having that money in a property because they're not seeing the price change every every minute. Though I've been told there's some softwares now that give you pretty up-to-date uh, estimates of the property price. Um, what about when it comes to super? Do you is there any benefit to super versus property because there are sort of tax benefits as there as well? Um, I think initially when you um, because of the leverage in the property market, right? So let's say that scenario where that someone can use one hundred and fifty thousand dollars of savings to go and buy a million dollar property. Um, and then that million dollar property can grow from, it makes sense to sort of, and that can grow tax-free from, to explore that first when you're younger, rather than sort of trying to focus on when you're 65, 70, you're super. Um, um, so I, I do think, you know, people, once people have got a house though, they're starting to build equity in it uh, and they're on top of their mortgage. I think people are missing a trick if they're not thinking about their super. Um, the reality is the government have really reduced how much you can put into super over the years. Um, and you, there, while there is a little bit of catch-up things you can do, if you don't do it this year, you can catch up next year in terms of your contributions. You Sometimes you, you either use it or you lose it. And so the opportunity to put money into super, what we find when seeing people are 20, 20 years older, when they're 40s and 50s, they come to advisors, me in the past, and they would say, I want to start getting, take action for my retirement. And I say, well, you probably should have done this in your 20s and 30s. Um, there's only so much we can do with your super fund over the next 10 years. Um, we need to do other things and other investing. And so I think it, once you're on top of your mortgage, you've got a good asset growing for you, maybe you start playing with your share portfolio. I think you've got to really take ownership of your super and treat that as your share portfolio, to be honest, because of all the tax advantages of salary sacrifice um, and the guaranteed returns that offers you straight away in the low tax environment of super. That's when I think you should really be trying to do, yep, a great asset like a property plus um, maximizing your super. Mm, yeah. And I know you mentioned um, you would usually only do up to 90% in terms of uh, what people could borrow and they would have to save up that 10%. And there's some government schemes now where people only have to come up with 5%. Do you think that's dangerous in a way because it doesn't sort of get you to practice that forced saving and getting to 10% or 20%? Uh, the government, is, when that actually came out, I remember the moment I was driving and heard scott morrison on the radio um and i was like screaming in my car like like it, they just don't get the reality of the the difficulties with property ownership and what they're trying to do is just win votes it literally came out just before the election as well i think it was like the the weekend before um that that has been very successful for the government just in terms of um winning votes with young people because the and while it's only ten thousand people it's now maybe 30 or forty thousand not exactly sure the problem is there were so many limits on that policy in terms of the purchase price. Um, and it's actually pushed people into different locations because of that there was limits on it. Right. Um, and it hasn't really, really solved the issues in the capital cities. I do think it's dangerous when people haven't got a, a strong track record of saving, but what COVID's done and for a lot of people who have potentially lived the good life um, and, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I did that in my twenties as well. Um, and haven't been focused on savings because they just haven't had that goal. Right. Sometimes they do take a shift and all of a sudden they've gone from, you know, no savings to a hundred grand to, you know, et cetera. And COVID's done that a lot because people come in and spend, you know, um, things on consumables, travel and cafes and all these sort of things. And so I do think that even though if you haven't got a great savings record in the past, things can shift pretty fast and owning a property sometimes um, forces people to take ownership because they know there's a mortgage to pay. Um, and so we have seen people who have really shifted dramatically, um, even though they've gone in with a small deposit. Um, and, you know, they maybe 12 months ago, they didn't even have a deposit. Um, yeah. 
I think you've um, done a really good job of kind of rebutting a lot of the points, Chris. And I think the one um, about that kind of life cycle is really important. That if I could just double click on that, which is using property as kind of like a tool to leverage into other things and kind of the order of operations insofar as the house, if it's a share portfolio, then you could use equity for that or you could use it to buy another property. Um, and then also focusing on super. Um, if, if someone's listening to this, right, and let's say, let's just use a, a case study, let's say they're 25, 26, um, they're in a relationship with it and they're saving combined, say 30 grand a year, right? This is not including their, their 10%, which goes from their employers to the super fund. Yeah. Um, they would like a house before 30. So I'm just throwing this at you on the fly. That's five years. Would you be saying to them, save that money um, and wait to buy the investment property or like what are some of the scenarios that might be, you might recommend for someone like that? Yeah. So it's an interesting one. So um, it's really difficult to advise singles. Um, you know, a lot of brokers will help singles, for example. Um, and it's hard because life changes, right? When you're in a couple. Um, and you plan, you know, you go from one income to two income, there's a, like a, a goal, a vision of your future. Um, and so in that situation, if you've got a couple 26 and they go, look, we want to buy a house before I'm 30, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's a lifestyle time thing as well. We want to get married, have kids, et cetera. Um, and, you know, they've got, you know, there are saving. I think at this stage, it's an opportunity, especially in your twenties to really be focusing on your, your career, make a something you're passionate about, but trying to increase your income because, that's going to give you the ability to save more. And once you can save more, then you start to compound and it sort of starts to snowball. So if I was sort of them, um, I mean, a four-year runway is also, if they haven't invested in shares in the past, um, it's, you know, looking at where markets are, all this sort of stuff, not about timing markets, but you just got to be very careful investing in shares over a short runway, right? And, you know, all investment things say that maybe is a bit short. So maybe if it's just, let's say they just leave that money in cash and they get a high interest savings account. But I would be doing absolutely everything I can to, for example, basically build that deposit as fast as I can, really. Um, that might be, you know, higher incomes. It might be saving harder. Um, you know, some people got the benefit of asking family for support. And, you know, I think for a lot of younger generations, they don't want to do it. You know, they've been independent since they were young and they want to do it in their own. But, you know, a lot of parents obviously do want to help their kids, um, and, you know, that's sometimes a situation where they can, you know, just allowing you to get, help you with the deposit. It's a huge benefit for you. Um, and a lot of parents want to do it. And so I'd be exploring that with them, um, saving really hard um, and then trying to get, you know, uh, their first home or something they could grow into as a couple. You know, maybe it's for, for five or seven years. Um, and hopefully that's a great investment. We're not really a big fan of going and buying investment properties that are cheaper, Um and then trying to sell those investment properties to then go buy something to live in. Um, you know, if that investment property doesn't work, and a lot of the time when you're buying cheaper assets, it's not going to perform as well. Um, you've got buy costs, sell costs. Um, I feel like it takes people a big detour. They go, I've got a property, but then when they go and buy a house in a few years' time, that hasn't really worked for them. Uh, it's delayed their home. There's an opportunity cost of that. So for them, I'd just be saving really hard and just trying to increase your income. Um, to get yourself into, if that means not buying for a few more years, that's fine. You know, um, you can't control the market, but they're the two things you can control. Do you look at, would you tell them to explore things like the super saver scheme? We get a lot of questions about that, um, where you can deposit up to current rules to say 15 grand per single. Um, and then you can withdraw that with an assumed amount of, let's call it interest. They call it earnings, I believe. Would you tell them to explore schemes like that? Yeah, that's an, it's, it's definitely a good one. Out of all the government things, it's that was also used as a political thing. Um, I don't like it from a um, philosophical point of view. Um, I think you're confusing people. Super, I can put money into super and I can take it out. What? What's buy a house? Like, no, super shouldn't be used like that. It's super should be like a, a, a box that you keep, a money jar that you can't open, right? And you can open it when you're 65 and get all the benefits. It shouldn't be. But I guess it, it's, it's a... Can you use it? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, I just get frustrated with the government's implementation of these sort of things. Generally, the government does things for first-home buyers that are um, encouraging them to do the wrong thing. And, you know, financial incentives to buy new property. Um, you know, in terms of the stamp duty concessions, it's always potentially for new property, um, et cetera. So, but these is another thing where I think they're just 
making it difficult for people to understand. You do need to be very clear if you're going to do this strategy, that you do all the right things to make sure you can pull that money out. We've absolutely seen people butcher it in terms of um, not made sure it's very clear that that's super, you know, saving money, you know, in terms of getting it out, making sure they do the forms right, et cetera. Mm. Yeah. Like my only iffy thing about that scheme is that what if you change your mind and you decide you don't actually want to buy a property and suddenly you've locked all of your capital in your super, which is great for your retirement, but you might've actually wanted to do something with it in the meantime. Yeah. Awesome point. Yeah. Yeah. And Chris, we just wanted to finish up with two listener questions from our Facebook community around uh, investment properties and negative gearing and exit strategies. So I might read the first one um, and then yeah, maybe Owen sure. reads the second one and see what your thoughts are. So the first one is, uh, I'd like to know a bit more about investment properties and negative gearing. When is it worth doing and when is it not worth doing? Um, I read for low to medium income earners and investment property isn't worth it compared to putting extra money into super and shares giving you the opportunity to re- retire early and enjoy life while you're fit and able. If you have two houses on mortgages on average income, you're forced to work till you're 65. Then at that age, this takes a turn here. You get serious health issues or even face death. So you can't enjoy retirement. So um, it's an interesting one here. The person sort of said here um, in their question, uh, it's a good question, right? Because they're thinking about things strategically here they're not just following what maybe you know the parents say and that's a big thing in property and society just buying investment property you know um and a lot of the time we actually think it's from from a financial advice point of view it's not the right thing to do um because there are alternatives right there are putting more money into super there are just strip feeding money into a share portfolio and paying off the home or adding value to the home it's not just i've got equity let's just go and i can borrow two hundred thousand dollars let's buy an investment property um, because it's sometimes it doesn't work. You know, the property might not go up. You make the negative gearing. Um, there might be big problems with maintenance and sometimes cheaper properties can very easily overcapitalize and maintenance costs can basically blow all your profit. Um, and you know, the repairs, etc. So for this person, I'd probably say maybe not because what they're sort of saying is that they're on a low to medium income, the amount of money that they potentially can borrow, um, on top of their home may be quite limited. And, the amount of money you can borrow plus the cash you've got, um, which shouldn't be any cash because you should be using that cash to pay off your home. So you should be borrowing every dollar for the investment. I'd just be interested to know what's a purchase price that they could borrow buy for an investment property. And then that determines the locations you can look at. And, you know, that might be the apartment markets of capital cities that, you know, and a lot of those have issues, you know, it could be, has to go regionally. It's not even nice, uh, like lifestyle locations that city people want to go to. It could just be completely regional, you know, towns um, that no one from the cities are ever going to move to, for example. So I think you just got to be really careful buying cheaper investment properties and I know that sort of sounds elitist and all that sort of stuff, but it's, it's just the reality of the truth. You know, you take more risk for less reward. Um, and so for some people like this is I actually think, you know what, pay off your home, maximize your super and buy shares, you know, um, because I'd much rather have a smaller share portfolio that's going to grow long-term, especially if it's negative geared with some, with a, um, you know, with an equity loan um, rather than a, a cheap investment property um, that doesn't grow and has a lot of risk. That's a great, great answer, man. Um, okay, so the second question was around investment property exit strategies, which is not something that we get a lot of questions on, but it's a valid one. Uh, they say, we have been investing in property over the years, which has been a great investment, but I'm currently at a fork in the road, whether I sell a couple of properties in the portfolio and take a step back from how hard I've been working or whether I put my head down to set my, myself and my kids up for retirement. I would love to hear from you guys regarding exit strategies. I know this can be a pretty dry topic, but everyone seems to talk about the investment and no one seems to talk about the end plan. So I guess this is, this is a lifestyle question as much as it is a property and investment question. Yeah, so exit strategies probably means thinking about retirement. So you're probably talking someone in their 50s, 60s, um, you know, maybe even older, um, unfortunately, the way the world is. Um, so, you know, it's a tough one, right? Because they may or may not have access to super. Um, now, if they've got access to super, if they want to sort of dial down there, you know, yes, you could sell your property, but if they're good assets, when you sell, you've got to pay capital gains tax. And so this person could be selling and paying capital gains tax because um, they're still working. 
So you're going to pay higher capital gains tax. So it might be better to sell those properties after they stop working. It might be better for them to use savings or other share portfolios or money in the offset to sort of get them to that period. Um, and then when they may want to start using their super. And the challenge with selling property is it's the easy thing to do, but um, and you pay off the mortgage and you get this big lump sum of cash as long as it's sort of grown over many years, which I assume in this situation it has, hence why you can stop working. But there might be alternatives that they can use other cash and other financial resources without selling that property uh, and may sell that in retirement where there's lower capital gains tax. You may sell them over different years. Um, but if they're quality assets, you may want to sell them last. You know, you might just, the rent might be paying the mortgage. It might be paying off might be quite positively geared, might give them an income in retirement. Um, and then you might sell it in their 70s and 80s and use their super first. Um, so I mean, exit strategies are, they're very individual. Um, but what I, my view on it is with property is that it's not a case of trying to buy four properties to sell two, to pay off two. So you got two free. You're much better off to buy a fewer number of properties, um, quality assets, and try to hold them to the later years in life and, and sell your properties basically last um, because you, you know, then you pay your capital gains tax last and you keep that money invested and growing. And so, yeah, if you want to retire before super, you've got to build up a pool, a pool of money to support you, um, you know, between when you stop working. A lot of people don't want to stop working as well. You know, there's a lot of purpose that you get through doing something every day. Um, and so, yes, people may want to stop their high pressure job, um, you know, at some point and maybe work three or four days a week, but they want to do something with their time. And so what I find is that those people who are thinking about this sort of transition, they don't go from working full time, flat out to no work at all. They dial it down. And in that dial it down period, they just get enough income to support them day to day. Their needs are much lower because they haven't, the kids have moved out and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then they can, that income can get them through to when they completely stop working in their sort of sixties and then they can draw on their super and then they can draw on their other assets. Um, mm. I think it's a bit of a myth that people, well, it's a dangerous path sort of going to, I want to work, 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 save money, and then I'm going to retire um, and, you know, and not work ever again. You know, there, there still is a, a sort of transition that I think is better for most people. It's interesting because um, obviously the fire community is very passionate in Australia, which um, I know you know about. Um, I actually looked into this quite a few years ago and found that there are some big, big red flags associated with people going from working um, to then not working so quickly yeah. and things like dementia and there are a whole heap of different studies that are linked to like social anxiety and depression that come from actually turning off the switch on, on work. And um, it makes sense. A lot of people try to replace that with like giving and, and social things or charity. Um, we have a heap of resources on our website for, for fire and people that are interested in, in, in those types of strategies and exit strategies in that respect. Um, Chris, question for you. You're obviously um, founder of Wealthful Mortgage Broker based out of Sydney, but you work with clients everywhere like me here in Melbourne. Um, you've done the property course with us with Amy Lenardi. Have, have you had people come through the course and, and reach out to you? Oh, absolutely. Like, um, yeah, I mean, I think our approach is just to really help and get to know someone and get the strategy right. And, um, you know, if they're still early in their journey and it's just a case of saying, right, let's figure out what savings we need based on our situation, you know, where we want to live, what our incomes are, what our sort of, um, yeah, it could be the start of that. Or it could be like, you know, we're thinking about, um, we've been having challenges sort of figuring out strategy, what to do with these properties, et cetera. So we've had lots of people who have done the property course come to us um, because there are further questions and, you know, mm -hmm. any type of education, that you do in anything in life, you then have to sort of use that education to tailor it to your personal needs. Um, and property um, is something where everyone's on different paths. Um, everyone's from different backgrounds. They've got different needs, aspirations. Um, might feel like everyone's the same, but you're only feeling like the same because you're going to look at the same properties again, but all their different means are completely different. And so mm. absolutely, when people have done the property course, and they've got some questions outstanding and absolutely they, you know, are potentially coming to us sometimes to, to see what do I do now in my situation, which we can help them think through. Yeah. And I think it's, um, so yeah, I just wanted to make sure that it actually, like I got a lot of value from doing the course myself. So um, it was awesome. And so if you want to, if you want to hear more from Chris, you can take the course or you can reach out to Chris directly at wealthful.com.au. Um, 
his brilliant team there. He's got team. He's got someone based in Melbourne. And core teams in Sydney, right? Yep. Yeah, Sydney, Melbourne. We've got a band business partners in Brisbane. Uh, yeah, oh, I, we're, I didn't know that. Yeah, oh, we're okay. spread out a bit, uh, and mainly on the the east coast. But um, yeah, we've also lived in all these different cities as well. I've lived in Melbourne for three years. I know it really well. It's clients, clients are constantly buying down there as well. So uh, no matter where you are, we can definitely have a good chat. And the Elephant in the Room podcast, um, it's weekly. Yeah, every Monday we we release a new guest. We had Simon Kushtemaker on this week. It was a demographer we have heaps of economists you know lots of people in property um yeah it's sort of my fun to be honest i get to think right what's the question i want to be thinking about in terms of property right who do we get on um and yeah. you know we've done almost 200 episodes now so it's uh, been good a long yeah three years crazy well if, yeah, awesome, if listeners want to geek out on property that's a fantastic resource <laughs> we'll, yeah. we'll link it all in the show notes so if this episode got you interested in anything um there will be plenty of resources there really appreciate yep. it. Chris, mate, we always appreciate your time. So thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Kate. Cheers. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? Invest Smart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.